Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Revel, all the way from the north of England. Episode 88, Resurrection Jesus. I taught, I taught, a puddy cat, a puddy cat, a puddy cat. What do 20th century American cartoons tell us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? We will pair the resurrection today with one of those cartoons. But I need to warn you, there's not a lot of fun and games today. Last week we put the resurrection in a horse race with the cross of Christ and it didn't run very well. Today we sober up to look into the heart of this big, bold belief as we try to take it apart. So I can't promise you many laughs today. Last year in our Lent series on the cross, we met a few bus passengers. Real people getting on with the real business of life sat on that most mundane mode of transport to help us earth Christian belief in lived experience. I wonder if any of you can remember our very first bus passenger from episode 42. Maria is a waitress in Dallas, Texas. She gets on the bus this morning slightly tearful as she looks at the ground. This 30-year-old single mother found out just as she was leaving her trailer home this morning some really bad news. She got a message from her sister back in Mexico that their mother had lost her battle with breast cancer and died in the night. Going home, which is what she would really want to do this morning, is out of the question. She knows the real question is this. When she gets off that bus and walks into the restaurant for the lunch shift, will she have composed herself enough to get through the shift? Or will the boss say, Go home, you can't serve customers here looking like that. She's got 20 minutes on this bus to gather herself and get herself ready for work. She can't afford to miss this work, but she feels overwhelmed with grief. She's never known grief like this before. Now Maria goes to a big Mexican-speaking Pentecostal church and they've just had a series of sermons about the resurrection of Jesus. Some of her favourite songs at church are about the resurrection. She knows the resurrection stories fairly well. And my question is this. Will Maria's belief in the resurrection of Jesus help her? Will 20 minutes of prayer to her risen Lord get her into a state to survive today? When you're crippled with grief, then how much use is the resurrection? The structure of this Lent series on the resurrection is going to be quite similar to the one on the cross last year. As with the cross of Jesus, I want to take apart this big, bold belief under three headings. How does it affect our picture of Jesus? How does it shape our theology of God? And what difference does it make? to those of us who try to live by it. So today, and probably next week, we're going to focus on Jesus. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead continues to shape the way his brief life is viewed 20 centuries later. Jesus' resurrection is most classically coupled with his death. 
That's why last week's horse race was a two-horse race, with two horses Good Friday and Easter Sunday. There are good reasons for this, but I want to couple it with several other things in his life as well. Moving chronologically through what the New Testament tells us about Jesus' biography, considering how each part of his life connects with his resurrection, we see how this belief shapes our picture of Jesus overall. What resurrection has added to the Jesus we know and what it has taken away. Let's begin with birth and resurrection. The resurrection stories at the end of all four Gospels have a lot in common with the birth narratives at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. The early church wanted their Lord and Master's life in this world to have both a special entrance and a special exit. Both traditions can be taken as Jesus' followers simply saying that he was a great man who stretched the normal categories of human greatness. I'm saying can be taken. The problem is that In the modern world, they have the unfortunate effect of taking away some of his humanity. For a baby to grow inside his mother's womb without the fertilising sperm of his father may have suggested a touch of divinity to first century Middle Eastern people. Even amongst the Romans, it was common for emperors to have been born of a virgin. Doubtless, Matthew and Luke thought they were adding divinity to Jesus' humanity. But to those of us with a 21st century understanding of conception, it feels very different. It can feel like an erosion of humanity. Those who wrote the accounts may have thought they were attesting divine greatness, showing Jesus as greater than a normal human being. But to us it can feel like a dent in his humanity. Our ancestors in faith may have thought they were adding to Jesus' humanity. But to us, it feels like his humanity is in some way diminished. Any real life story begins with the meeting of a sperm and an egg, and it ends with death, permanent death. The Gospels inadvertently erode Jesus' humanity from both ends. In both cases, he is made less of a human being. I think it's easier to forgive the hyperbole of the nativity stories than in the resurrection accounts. The nativity stories of Matthew and Luke are wonderful pageants of playful theatre, rich in drama and symbol. It's almost as though they were designed to create a glow in the hearts of modern parents watching their children in Christmas school assembly performance. This is an enduringly popular part of the Christian religion. Resurrection plays are not popular in school assemblies or even churches. The resurrection appearances are less playful. Somehow we can live with the implausibility of the theatrical birth stories more easily. The ending of life is a more serious business. Tales about birth can get away with more dramatic license. Looking back on those early Christians with 2,000 years of science we can accept that they may not have fully understood the process of conception, but they would surely have understood the permanence of death. Most of us can live with the virgin birth whilst not taking it too literally. But the resurrection underlines its own literal dark side. A man born of a virgin is not a normal human being. 
neither is anyone whose death lasts only for one weekend. Is it time for Tweety Pie yet? No. Next up, Jesus' healings and resurrection. Healing the lame, deaf and blind alongside exercising demons is an important part of Jesus' ministry. These miracles are modest in scale and style. They're subtle and small scale in execution, but significant in meaning. It's not hard to work out the picture they paint of God's character that Jesus is representing. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted to make much more dramatic miracles that would overwhelm people with his divinity. Rejecting this way, Jesus preferred intervention for the purpose of helping people to enjoy the blessing of life in this world. Resurrection jars with these miracles we're so familiar with. Consider who benefits. The ministry miracles were for the benefit of others. Resurrection is for Jesus' own benefit. On no other occasion does Jesus deploy his powers for his own good. In the wilderness, Jesus rejected using his divine power to minister to his own needs. He'd rather suffer 40 days of hunger than miraculously produce bread. He was not averse to doing a bit of bread for other people, but not for himself. Resurrection breaks the pattern of Jesus' powers being directed outwards for the benefit of others. In one sense, the resurrection appearances continue in a similar vein to Jesus' ministry, i.e. small-scale fleeting encounters that depend in part on the ability of the witness to perceive something. But there's a fundamentally different level of plausibility required. A deaf man hearing again, maybe. A cripple walking home, perhaps on a good day. A boy making his sandwiches stretch out to feed the crowd. Inspirational leadership might just about pull this off. But resurrection, never in a month of Sundays. Now Christians have usually been at great pains to point out that Jesus' miracles are not magic. Their solemn spiritual purpose put them in a very different category, we are told by Orthodox Christianity. But resurrection, I think, blurs this distinction. The miracle of Jesus' ministry coming closest to resurrection is, of course, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. This has never been seen as a full-blown resurrection because we presume that Lazarus would have died again later as an old man. The story's been traditionally seen as anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. I see it as a bridge leading in the other direction, bringing the fanciful magic of resurrection into Jesus' earthly ministry. Robert Knapp, that's with a K, in his book The Dawn of Christianity, points to the Roman catacomb depictions of Jesus' arm raised with a long magic wand in his hand as he raises Lazarus. Those artists intuited that the Jesus of resurrection is more of a magician than Orthodox Christianity has felt able to say. Yes, there is something slightly magical about resurrection and its showmanship infects the general tone of serious sobriety which otherwise prevails throughout the Gospels 
of Jesus' adult life. Aitoa, putty cat. Where's the putty cat? Yes, there is a putty cat coming in this next section on death and resurrection. The resurrection narrative affects all the other gospel stories, none more so than the passion narrative. The accounts of Jesus' death are detailed and plausible. They may not be nice to modern sensibilities, but they certainly feel serious and real. But when you read them next to the resurrection stories, their character changes. You start to wonder about the veracity and historical reliability of the whole story. If Christianity is trying to sell itself as the religion based on history, then the resurrection stories really do not help. For people who want to attack the historicity of Christianity, well, the resurrection stories are probably the first place for them to turn. The gospel least infected by resurrection is, of course, Mark. After Jesus' burial, we get just eight verses of resurrection. Not the barnstorming show of resurrection appearance, but the disappointment of his closest female followers finding the empty tomb where he lay. Mark 16 ends, Trembling and bewildered, they fled. What they experienced was an absence rather than a presence. If only the early church could have coped with the pain of losing Jesus. Mark's refusal to wheel out the bandwagon of resurrection makes it feel more secure and more historical an account of what really happened. Matthew, Luke and most of all John give us the full drama of resurrection appearances seen and celebrated. In each case, this undermines their best efforts to give us a big, bold and believable account of Jesus' death. I taught I taught a putty cat? Yes, Tweety Pie, there is a putty cat coming. But I have to let you down gently. It's not your putty cat, Tweety Pie. It's the cartoon of Tom and Jerry. In this wonderful American cartoon, the cat chases the mouse round the house through a whole assault course of acrobatic encounters. Towards the end of the story, we see the mouse badly injured. He'll be dropped from a huge height or run over by a large truck or minced in a terrifying machine. We think he's dead. We cannot imagine any possible recovery. Then, after a brief interlude of sad music, the mouse revives and springs back to life, ready for the next adventure. I think there is a sense in which the resurrection makes the story of Jesus last week feel a bit like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. You cannot add resurrection to a life story without affecting the feel of the whole thing. If Mark is the gospel least affected by resurrection, then John's got to be the one most affected. So desperate is this evangelist to avoid Jesus being seen as a passive victim in death that his kingly Jesus enjoys an unhuman agency around dying. I quote, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. John chapter 10, 17 to 18. Oh dear, no real human being is able to determine the time or manner of their death. 
possible exception of suicide. Death is the experience of having life taken from you. And the reason this is so difficult is that when life goes, it's gone forever. There is no option to take it back again. Try telling a cancer ward patient that their life is something they have authority to lie down when they feel like it and then the authority to take it back at will. No human being has ever enjoyed that power over the unpredictable finality of death. At some point between the passion narrative of Mark and John, the death of Jesus has become less real, less convincing. Did Jesus really die? Now, because of the resurrection, that's not a silly question. Clearly, the bishops who composed the creed expected people to ask this, or why would they emphasise that Jesus was not only crucified, but dead and buried? The problem flows from the ambiguity around the question of what sort of death did Jesus experience? We can see that he was killed, but in what sense did he die? The only death we know of is permanent in duration. We cannot conceive of temporary death. If Jesus experienced death for only 36 hours, then whatever it was he experienced was not what we normally think of as death. There's a fascinating religious building in Sweden which has a church at one end with a mosque at the other. I nearly included this in our Islam series, but I decided to save it for today. In the church part of the building, Jesus is worshipped for having died for our sins and risen from the dead. In the mosque, the prophet Jesus is remembered as ending his life without actually dying. I think it's inevitable that if people at one end of this building are going to say that Jesus rose from the dead, then some others will say he never died. Islam is merely playing out the flawed implications of resurrection. When you see someone who you thought was dead, now apparently alive, then one of the most obvious ways to interpret this is to revise your view about their death. Resurrection erodes the clarity of Jesus' death, and despite discouragement from the creed, it was only a matter of time before other believers in another country in another century would develop the tradition this way. Resurrection does not simply add a grand finale to Jesus' life. Resurrection is a cloud that comes down over Jesus' life and death. After this, we can no longer see his death with the same clear-sightedness. It's hardly surprising that when crucifixion dominated the church message about Jesus from 800 to 1000 AD, the resurrection was quietly relegated. A church that wanted to tell the world about Jesus' death did not want to dwell on his resurrection. Yes, the resurrection lost the two-horse race last week all right, but it's got some of its own back by weakening the power of the cross. As we finish today, we're nearly halfway through now this task of going through Jesus' life and working out how each part of his life connects with resurrection. You see, I'm putting the emphasis on what the resurrection means rather than the historicity. But let's finish today with a few scraps of historical speculation.
There's no question in my mind that right from the beginning, Jesus' disciples talked about resurrection very soon after his death. Now, it's not easy to find one simple cause for the emergence of resurrection tradition within the early church. I'm convinced that one major cause was a burning sense of injustice after Jesus' trial and execution, together with a desire to see justice done. Peter on the day of Pentecost is typical. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. The disciples were outraged by the brutal put-down of their leader. They wanted to see his vindication. What better vindication for the victim of execution than to walk out of his grave? He takes the suffering, but not the death. Death bounces off him. The first resurrection stories were not the hallucination of grief, but fighting talk about God getting even. God was showing the world that his man, their man, did not deserve crucifixion. The resurrection stories are, first of all, tales of vindication. It's not easy for Christians of future generations to see the resurrection as the frustration of Jesus' enemies. Centuries of cross-worship and atonement theology make it hard to imagine what the Christians of 30 AD felt like. They did not romanticise the death of Jesus. The crucifixion was a disaster and the resurrection was God's way of showing that the judgment of Pilate would not stand. The resurrection proclaimed Jesus' innocence to those outraged by his condemnation. John Dominic Crossan thinks the gospel story was always about an innocent one vindicated by God. It was never a simple passion story, but a passion vindication story. He thinks this is what's on the gospel writers' minds when they talk about the resurrection fulfilling the scriptures at Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. We'll finish with the cross and quote. It's clear enough that what is actually according to the scriptures is the diet of persecution vindication. That's from the birth of Christianity, page 548. Perhaps the very first expressions of resurrection came from outraged followers still in the anger stage of grief. Thank you for listening to episode 88. Next week we move on to ascension and resurrection, heaven and resurrection, as we finish off the way resurrection affects our picture of Jesus. Jesus. 